0: Hey, everybody, this is Greg Penix. and you're listening to the 23rd issue of Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. I am, uh... This is gonna be a tough one to get through. I'm I'm really drunk tonight. It's almost 3 o'clock in the morning, and I just did FaceTime karaoke with my great friend in Hawaii, And I don't know why. I just was like, I want to do a podcast. So, um, sorry you have to hear this. This is for my benefit only, apparently. This is my therapy. And, uh, I'm going to devolve into my fantasy world now. And, uh, that's why I do this podcast. So I believe last time we left off, We finished out the 70s. But once again, I fucked up and forgot to mention something. So I forgot to say that in 1979, the Amazing Tales Annual, which happens every year, it's a nice, big, fat 80 page adaptation of some classic. And in 1979, it was the Song of Roland. Uh, The famous, well, it was like the first epic poem, I think, in French history. And, uh, you know, it's it's a heroic tale. Lots of action, war scenes, whatever. So it would be a good comic, huh? Wouldn't it? So who's going to draw that? I think this is perfect. P. Craig Russell. doing The Song of Roland in 1979. That's going to be fucking beautiful. He always do shit like that. He was always drawing all those opera adaptations and doing, like, Siegfried and, you know, Peleus and Melisande. So, it's uh, it's in his wheelhouse, as the, the kids say. Uh, the very rich, yuppie kids say. So, yeah, The Song of Roland, 1979, Amazing Tales Annual. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. But um, there's a few other things I wanted to touch on as we leave the 70s. I forgot to mention some things. And uh, I wanted to mention that uh, Hercules has been running in Amazing Tales since the early 70s. Prices is 1970. And so has Dracula. And I was thinking it would be another goofy crossover type thing of classic literature tropes or whatever you call them. Because Hercules, since the 1970s Amazing Tales, we've been telling all of his, almost like travels through time because he's an immortal. And uh, basically, uh, you know, he's been in ancient Rome. And then after that, he might came to the New World, Europe, China. He's been around. He's just a fucking hero. And uh so eventually we're gonna get to the point where he's like in like Transylvania in eighteen eighty or whatever it was, eighteen hundreds. And it's gonna be like a year long story, just like our Beowulf's Inferno crossover. Were the Hercules-Dracula War, which I just think would be nuts. But I think it would be kind of fun. Because, you know, Hercules is this, like just strong. He's pretty clever, but he's basically just a big, strong motherfucker. And Dracula's all cunning and evil and, you know, he has all these minions. So I think it would be pretty interesting, pretty fun. And that's something I just want to touch on. That could be something that happened in the seventies, and it would have been great and probably Esteban Morado would have drawn it um another thing in uh amazing tales I was thinking also around then we could have been doing all the adventures of El Cid, the great Spanish hero, which I didn't realize this. I was looking up a uh, song of Roland. That was the first epic poem in Spain's history. And it was roughly around the same time. So, who knows? Maybe we'd have a crossover between Roland and El Cid. I mean, just, it's not that far from Spain and France. And uh, they could have met. But I figured that would be a great thing for Esteban Morada to, to draw. Because he's Spanish. And, you know, drawing the... National hero of Spain would be pretty cool and it would just be great you know, epic adventure, so it would be pretty good um, also I wanted to mention um, Amazing Weekly I know I don't talk about it that much I just figure there's great shit going on there, use your imagination and uh, but I did want to add that like, maybe in the late 70s, ElfQuest by Wendy and Richard Peeney would be a thing. Because that, that's actually realistic. Before they self-published all those elf quests in like 78, I believe it was, they sent it out to everyone. And every comic company was like, nah, we can't do anything with this. This is not what we do. But I gotta say... You know, I'm a 53-year-old man who reads, like, <laughs> lots of uh, all kinds of comics. But I still like ElfQuest. Definitely when I was a teenager, I loved ElfQuest. It was so unique. I mean, I was reading, like, Super Villain Team Up and, you know, DC Comics Presents, all these, like, insipid Marvel DC shit. And ElfQuest was definitely like, oh, these creators are actually... Creating something with their own voice. It's not just like they're hacking it out for some corporation. Like making widgets at the factory. I mean, let's be honest. Most comics we read as kids, if you're my age, that's what they were. There was no individual voices being heard. It was just like, hey, you're writing Spider-Man. Have him fight Dr. Octopus. Do some... A little dialogue... You know, it wasn't like, oh, wow, this writer really has something to say. That didn't happen often. I mean, you had guys like Steve Gerber, obviously. And uh, they were good. But uh, ElfQuest did seem to come from a passionate place in the peony's heart. They were actually like, yeah, we want to fucking tell this story very badly. Another thing, late 70s. I don't know if this this might take over the whole Amazing Weekly. But I was kind of thinking, like, it probably would be a good idea if we licensed two thousand AD shit. Because, I mean, you know, I didn't, couldn't access that stuff back when I was a kid. It probably would have blown my mind to fucking <laughs> a million bits. Because, like I said, I was reading that stuff. You know, whatever, reading Shogun Warriors and Micronauts. But, oh my God. Now as an adult, I look back at that two thousand d stuff. I've read a lot of it since then. Oh my God, that stuff's so good. Rogue Trooper, Judge Dredd, Nemesis the Warlock. Oh my God, I can't believe, like, little kids in England got to read that. I feel jealous. I mean, that was geared to the same target audience, you know, as as I was. But I wasn't fortunate enough to live in England and have access to 2000 AD. So I was stuck with whatever, um, the random Marvel DC comics I had. So, yeah, that might be fun, but I'm kind of just like, oh, my God, there'd be nothing else in Amazing Weekly. So I didn't know what would happen. I don't know if... Maybe we'd actually publish... A separate just comic. That's like the best of 2000 AD. It wouldn't be a bad idea. That shit was awesome. All of... It, so much good stuff from that. Definitely way better than anything... Going on in America at the time. And for 10 years... After that. So that's another thing... I've been thinking about. I figure I should add. So... Let's get on to 1980, shall we? So, 1980. Our, our new comic for that year. Every year we introduce a title. And now it's kind of getting ludicrous. Because we have like 35 titles. I mean, amazing comics. <laughs> it's got to be a very well run. This, this is a huge fucking business we got going now. And um so the 1980 title introduction is Victory Squad. You know that name. That was our comic in the 40s. It was the superhero team uh slash comic book that we published all through the 40s during the golden age, and that's what they were. A bunch of golden age superheroes fighting the Nazis and the Sab- saboteurs and doing all that kind of shit. And, uh, and then in 1950, we put it to bed. But in 1980, we're bringing it back. Kind of like the retro thing. And, you know, like All-Star Squadron, um, The Invaders. It's like, Nazis are great villains. So, it's always kind of you know, money in the bank, to go back to World War II shit. That's why comics have done that. So, Victory Squad, and uh, if you remember, they're like, you know, pretty typical Justice Society of America, you know, wartime, Golden Age superheroes, but they're a little different, because almost everyone in Victory Squad is like, in American society, is an outsider. Uh, I think we mentioned earlier there's, there's like one of the characters this kid samurai who's this kid who's his whole family was putting in internment camps because that's what we did in World War II uh, it's still hard to believe that that happened and it's still kind of okay <laughs> it almost seems like uh, kind, we're kind of sorry about it but it's really horrible but um yeah, but he, he kind of gets out of the camps. And uh, he's one of the superheroes in this group. Um, another one I thought of, I, it just sounds like a perfect human, uh, sorry, golden age superhero. He's this guy called the Human Tank. And basically he's just a guy who's really strong. He's kind of a squat, short guy. Really stocky as fuck. He's just like a little fucking pack of muscle. So he built his own, like, uh, armor, you know, pretty cheap. It's not fancy or anything. It's just, like, but he has the strength to to wear it. Most people would just, like, couldn't walk. But he's such a strong little squat little dude. He's, like, yeah, I'm strong as fuck. And he makes himself this, like, suit of armor and. uh, it doesn't look like a knight or anything. It's just like weird metal on his body. But it's kind of like a... It's almost like Iron Man. Like a a low-rent Iron Man. You know, he can run into a place with all these guys with guns and the bullets bounce off of him. But um, I had some other Victory Squad members I think years ago in my head. I can't remember them now. And, uh, I can't remember. But, you know, basically just, you can you can suss it out. They're, you know, a bunch of golden age superheroes. And it would take place in the 40s. This is going to be a comic that doesn't take place now. It's just telling more adventures about them. I know we told lots of adventures of them in the 40s. But there's plenty of things we didn't talk about. Uh, you know, actually we couldn't. They couldn't, because just like the Justice Society and the all-winner squad at Marvel, those guys really couldn't go to Europe and fight the Nazis, because it would have been ludicrous. It was like, these superheroes would just have ended the war immediately. Like, can you imagine if Superman went over to fight the actually fight World War Two? He would have just flown over to Hitler's bunker and tore his head off. There you go. End of story. (laughs) Then he would have flown over to where Mussolini lives. And Hirohito. And just destroyed the countries. But they knew that that would be unrealistic. So that's why the superheroes never went over to Europe. There's always some weird reason why. Even though they fought, like, the good fight here. Fighting saboteurs and stuff. So, um. Uh, yeah, that's it for, uh, our new title, Victor Squad. Oh, my God. I just, I just want to apologize. I realize as I'm talking, I can hear myself. And I can hear how drunk and stupid I am. And I don't even know why I'm continuing to record, but... I'm gonna, because I want to. But I, yeah, I would not be sad if... or mad at you if you just said I can't listen to this shit this guy's just it's gibberish I get it so I'm gonna try to not pass out at least this episode like I did a little while ago but um I don't know I I might but um so who's gonna draw victory squad 1980 this is gonna be perfect I'm getting Dave Gibbons I'm going over to England, doing a little safari and uh, headhunting. And uh, so, like I've told you before, amazing comics, we're not just about, oh yeah, whatever hack we can get at the cheapest price. We're looking over the world. That's where we got the Filipinos and way before anyone else did as Spanish artists. We're like, God, look at 2000 AD in England. These guys are fucking great. Let's offer them some nice money. And we're going to hire them. Not that this didn't happen a few years later in our reality. Probably 1982, 1983, 1984. DC Comics did do that. The exact same thing. They went to England and not only got the artists, but they got the writers. And that's when they got Alan Moore and Brian Bolland and Dave Gibbons. But, you know, we're smarter than they were. And we got Dave Gibbons in 1980. In fact, we might have had him earlier. He might have been drawing shit for Amazing Weekly and, you know, all that stuff. So that, that's just perfect, you know. It's I know it's kind of like I didn't make it up. Obviously, Dave Gibbons is good at drawing Golden Age heroes. You know, look at the Watchmen. Like, I know it's a minor part of that comic, that brilliant comic. But kind of the comic geek in me would love to see like a 50-issue run of Dave Gibbons just drawing Adventures of the Minutemen in the 40s. You know, those superheroes. And he's just, he's great. Dave Gibbons can draw anything he wants. Perfectly and solidly. Very clear. Um, line. Not clear. Ligne. But he's good. He's got the goods. So that's going to be great. And um, once again. Very proud of my editing skills. <laughs> editing things that don't. I never had to do anything with. So the. um. That summer, we have an amazing tales annual again, once again. And that is Journey to the Center of the Earth, the famous science fiction novel by Jules Verne. And, uh, you know, that's the famous one where apparently the earth is hollow. And if you go there, it's still, like, the antediluvian age. And there's dinosaurs and whatever. So who's going to draw that? Dinosaurs? William Stout. Now, William Stout is a guy... I don't think he ever drew anything for Marvel or DC. Well, I know he did for Epic in the 80s. That was that weird Harvey Kurtzman graphic novel. That was special. But as far as like, this is what, this is proof of how like just fucking moronic most comic book companies were. Well, William Stout probably would have been glad when he was a young hippie in 1970, for example. He was doing bootleg album covers, all brilliant. A few underground things here and there. He didn't do much. But everything he did was stellar. So good. William Stout is... He's one of those artists. He's like a perfect cartoonist. Everything he draws just looks great. He could draw like a baby. Or a dinosaur. Or whatever. He's just... He has such a good style. Everything's... I don't think I've ever seen a bad panel from William Stout. Or cover. Or page. It, it's all good and um, I've never seen maybe he has some stuff before you know when he was young like when he was 15 but man he as a young man he just came out of the gate just like I've got this perfect style ready to go and on top of that William Stout is not only known for loving di- drawing dinosaurs I mean there's other comic artists like that Steve Bassett, obviously Walt Simonson put William Stout basically made a second career for his life out of his love of dinosaurs. He's drawn, well painted I should say, like these very well regarded paleontology books that are like outside of comic book shit. They're well respected books in like, oh if you're a dinosaur person, you have to own these books. I think it was just called the dinosaurs. That's the name of the book. It's been probably reprinted like seventeen times since the late seventies. So he is he knows a shit about dinosaurs. And he's also just a great artist in the E C tradition, which Journey to the Center of the Earth would be perfect for. It's almost like an EC comic where these people go to the center of the earth and fight dinosaurs and there's no twist ending, but it's still I think it's pretty perfect. But I just wanted to say, not to gloat. Since I really can't gloat, since I haven't done anything. I'm just making up this fake shit. But the fact that Marvel and DC in 1970 was like... There's this guy up there. He probably would work for our rates. Let's get him to draw Conan. Or whatever random comic they had. Oh no, we're going to keep paying this turd to to hack out his shit it's just it's crazy to me these guys were amazing and uh, it's sad okay so 1981 let's move on and sorry I'm so rambling so 1981 I think it's finally time for the Tempest Fugitives to get their own title. I mentioned them earlier. They've been in Amazing Spotlight intermittently since this, you know, since Amazing Spotlight started. And it's basically an excuse for us to to mine into the all this like world building we've been creating using all these literary characters. So you know, we've had since the 40s in Amazing Tales. We've had, you know, songs about the Scarlet I'm sorry songs uh, stories about the Scarlet Pimpernel Hercules uh, Gilgamesh all these random things so this would be a way to get them all together it would almost be like a team up book uh, And with our character our, uh, our time traveling character we kind of collect them all because he's a time traveler so he can go snatch people from time and be like okay we got a job to do I need Enkidu from Gilgamesh. And I need, uh, I don't know, Pippi Longstocking. And whoever, who's ever out there. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's The Tempest Fugitives. And it would just be a pretty fun comic. I figured it would be kind of lighthearted, because it's just, you know, it's kind of a silly idea. But, I mean, it would be pretty fun. Just all these... And it would change, you know, every now and then the Voyager, the the time traveler would be like, okay, I, I'm going to get this guy now. So it would, the lineup would change, it would be all these interesting characters, sometimes Robin Hood, Robin Hood would be there, and I don't know, Ivanhoe, whoever. Any character from literature, or real time, because we mix up all that shit, so, you know, I don't know maybe they'd have uh, Albert Einstein help him out sometime <laughs> I don't know how that would be um exciting but it could be good so that's the Tempest Fugitives and I just realized I don't even have an artist for this this is the first time I'm embarrassed but I don't want to start this episode over and I can't edit so I'll get back to that at a future date but um because I, I had to remix some stuff recently, I had to change some things around, and uh, I just never got around to that part of it. Um, but it's gonna be a, it's gonna be great. Trust me. You know, Amazing Comics, we have the best artists in the world. So who's ever drawing it, it's gonna be very good. I'll just tell you that. So um, so that year the uh, Amazing Tales Annual. In Summertime, it's going to be Call of the Wilds by John Severin. And uh, it's going to be the first of a twofer, not to give too much away. But, um, you know, I loved that book as a kid. I loved Wolves. I loved uh, anything about wolves. But, you know, that's a classic. That would be great. And John Severin would be amazing at it. He can draw whatever he wants. Still, even in, God, in 1981, he was fucking still great. I have some John Severin comics from, like, the late 80s where it's like, God damn it, you're not slowing down at all. Almost every artist I've ever loved, you know, when they're pushing their late 40s, 50s, maybe 60s he was in, but at that point, they always kind of, like, let you down. After a while, it's like, ah, you're losing it. But John Severn, man, even into the 90s, could still just fucking great illustrator. He just, it's it's amazing to me how good he was for so long. So there's a lot of fucking artist switchers in 81. So I'm kind of sad I even started this now because I'll try not to pass out. So what do we got here? Okay, Gunhawk, our classic Western hero, is going to be taken over by Juan Ortiz. Once again, we got our ears to the ground and our eyes to the ceiling and our spleen to the walls, and we're looking all over the world. Now, Juan Ortiz, he was... I think, at this point, I think he was drawing in the 60s. Amazing Spanish artist. Just, like, beyond classic style. Like, it's like Milton Caniff, Juan Ortiz. Like, he just has that simple, raw style. Nobody can duplicate his ink line the way he draws. Like, kind of like Joe Kubert. He's, I never, yeah, I never thought about that before. He is almost like a Joe Kubert... Everything's kind of scratchy and rough but so good. And um this isn't that far from reality cuz in the mid 80s, slightly mid 80s, وانت finally did some American publishers were finally like, "Hey, this guy's great." And Eclipse Comics got him to draw Saber, um their comic and uh But, you know, he was in Heavy Metal way before that. The reprints from uh, his uh, European comics. So, yeah, it's not much of a stretch that we could have gotten one of Because, you know, even those shitty comic companies like Marvel and DC and Eclipse, they paid better than, you know, Spanish publishers. That's why every now and then, like those Filipinos came over here. And the English guys in the 80s. But I mean, we'd be paying way better. So it's like, yeah, of course Juan Ortiz, if we come a callin knocking on his door, he's gonna be like, thank you, yes. And yeah, Juan Ortiz, drawing a western, pretty perfect. If you know Juan Ortiz's style, that would be just a great gritty western. It would. it would get more spaghetti western y. And um, uh, I don't know, in his case maybe paella. Western, but it's gonna be nice. So after that, um, I definitely can't even remember who's drawing God Hawk, and I'm not even gonna try. So I'm just gonna go down the list. Hopefully, I'll figure it out. Okay, next, Crimson Knight has a new artist, and that's gonna be Rudy Nebrés, and I think that's pretty perfect too. Rudy Nebrez, just luscious. Yeah, whenever I look at Woody Neighbors, I literally think of that adjective, luscious. His art is luscious. Everything looks luscious. It's it's just very, it's beautiful. And just doing a night comic with lots of fantasy, that's going to be pretty f- fucking dead on. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Ms. 45. Our you know, 30s era film noir heroine. We're going to get Russ Heath is switching over to there. That's going to be great. Russ Heath, well, you know, he's not, not the most perfect artist for that, but he's damn good for that. And uh, and I'm sure he'd love it. Because Russ Heath has drawn many comics in that milieu in his career. And it would be great. So, after that, this is the first time we've done this. An artist is coming back to his creation. Tour. Joe Kubrick's coming back. He created it in the 50s. And then, you know, drew it for a lot of years. Said, I want to move on. But, you know, just like in our reality, Joe Kubrick created tour in the 50s. And then, well, the the company went out of business. He might have continued it forever, but I, I doubt it. But... In the 70s and 80s... Later on in the 80s... He went back to tour. He still wanted to tell some caveman... Stories. (coughs) And I think in 81... Joe Kubrick's style... So different in the 50s... It would almost be like a whole other... Artist drawing it. So... (coughs) That's going to be fun as hell. Having Joe Kubrick come back to tour... And, you know, Joe Cooper drawing caveman, That's going to be fucking great. Okay. <clears throat> also at this time... Captain Action... is uh, going to be uh, taken over... For, for just a couple of years... by John Byrne. And this is all part of the thing I've said earlier... where John Byrne... he was like Kirby. When he was in his prime. That guy could draw really well drawn. Like two or three comics a month. Not only was he cranking it out, but it all looked brilliant. It was beautiful. And uh so I I think basically I'm just trying to recapture a little bit of my childhood when some of my favorite comics when I was a kid was when John Byrne did that small run on Captain America. It was about eight issues, I think. Roger Stern wrote them. I think Joe Rubenstein inked and God, when I was a kid, when those comics came out, I was like, holy shit. This is the best shit ever. I wasn't even that huge a Captain America fan. I mean, most kids like Captain America, at least the kids I knew. It wasn't like he was Superman. Well, I didn't know anyone who liked Superman. All the kids were like, yeah, Superman's kind of lame. But Captain Action is kind of like a Captain America, basically. At least as far as like power level. He's just a, you know, union suit wearing superhero. But that's, I basically, that's why I'm doing that. John Byrne could do it, even though he's drawing Omega Men. But uh, I'm sorry, Omega Tribe. But yeah, he'd have time to do Captain Action for a couple of years. After that, Beowulf will be taken over by. Frank Brenner which I think would be pretty great um, Beowulf is kind of like our hybrid. he's a superhero basically in our universe but he's also kind of a barbarian and you know Frank Brenner was really good at that so I don't know if we're going to cater the tales to Frank Brenner and make him more like oh yeah maybe he's off in space on some crazy world barbarian world or You know, maybe he'll do something. I don't know. Uh, But, yeah, Frank Brenner, great artist. So, it's going to look nice. (laughs) Okay, so, next, Galaxy Core. Our futuristic, kick-ass science fiction comic. And, uh, we're getting a new entry the stable of amazing comics and it's Keith Giffen. Oh wait I think I'm wrong. I think Keith Giffen has already been drawing something for us but I can't. Yeah I think he was but fuck it. Okay forget I said that. Keith Giffen is switching over to Galaxy Corps and you know once again I'm aping reality because Keith Giffen had that long run on Legion of Superheroes in the early 80s and, uh, that was, uh, during Keith Giffen's Sedate Style, when he was just trying to draw straight, you know, his early career, he was, like, really doing this full-on crazy Kirby thing, and, uh, trying a few other styles, and, but, um, and then, of course, after this, he goes off the rails, and full-on becomes a plagiarist, and starts ripping off Carlos Sampoyo and Whatever, Or is it, is it Jose Munoz? I always forget the writer-artist. Which one's the artist and which was the writer of that famous team. But Keith Giffen. It's going to be a fun comic. Great storyteller. Maybe he'll be writing it. Because around this time, Keith Giffen started dabbling in writing. And then became a great writer. And, uh... Gotta be fun stuff. And, um... After that, we got Starhawk... And taking over Starhawk Is going to be Walt Simonson Which You know that guy loves science fiction He did the Star Slammers That was his first comic he ever drew I think When he was a student at college And of course it became a comic later But there's this early Fanzine Whatever Of the Star Slammers Uh, Just Walt Simonson's great Especially doing outer space shit That's going to be beautiful. And he's also good at superheroes. And Starhawk is basically a superhero, but he's very sci-fi based. Dr. Warlock. um, Our our Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, this is going to be good. And I wish this happened in our reality. It did for one issue. And of course, I'm talking about Doctor Strange. Dr. Warlock is obviously our... Doctor Strange so in 1981 Doctor Warlock's gonna be taken over by Michael Golden um I don't really care what Michael Golden draws I would love if he drew Little Lulu or Archie he's just so good and during Doctor Warlock the Sorcerer Supreme of the Amazing Comics Group Oh, that's going to be good. I wish I had those comics. I wish they were real. But um, if you want to see a taste of that, um, go to the back issue bins and look up Doctor Strange 55. The one issue Michael Gold drew. And it is one of the best Doctor Strange. I can't even remember the story, but looking. It's the best looking Doctor Strange ever. It's so perfect. Okay, after that, Warhawk, our uh, World War II hero, um, is going to be taken over by Howard Chaikin. But this is going to actually signal a change in Warhawk. The war has ended. We've been telling, you know, Warhawk's World War II adventure since 1959. He's been everywhere in every theater of combat. In World War Two, he's been there, and basically we've through Warhawk. If you read every issue of Warhawk up to now, you pretty much got a whole history of World War Two. Every amazing battle, all the big ones. Um, so it's almost like a history lesson. If you read this comic, you're like, "Oh, okay, that's that's how World War Two happened." But you know, we've told enough war comics tales. So Warwick's going to take this turn where the war has ended and now he becomes like a freelance guy. He's basically like a mercenary. He's like, all I know is war. I'm really good at it. I'm a good fighter. I'm a good soldier. But I got no war anymore. So it's going to be like him just throughout their late 40s and later on in the early 50s. But I kind of figured. Because like it's weird that. I guess Amazing Comics. Even though it's back then. Is kind of going to mirror my. View of the world. Where like. It's going to be like kind of. Like Warlock's going to actually be like. He's going to be like. Coming up against the CIA a lot. Which were basically villains back then. You know. We don't learn this in American history. When you're a kid in school, it's not like, oh, the CIA. But they really were monstrous, what they did in Latin America and all throughout the world. I mean, we were pretty bad, the shit we did. It was all under wraps, you know. It was all kind of covert. But when you look back, now that all those things are released and they're public knowledge, it's like... Yeah, we were kind of. We really fucked up the world. We we did a lot of evil shit, and this comic will reflect that. The CIA will not be the good guys when he's down in Latin America. It's not gonna be like we're the noble CIA trying to help this country. No, it's like you're trying to assassinate this elected official because you just don't. He's not gonna be friendly with American corporations. So you want to get rid of him, so, and you know Howard Chicken would be totally on board with that and perfect for that. But also Howard Chicken loves those, you know, just human characters. It, I think it would be amazing. Howard Chicken draw this. It would, be, I think he would have loved it, and, you know, it's gonna be a great comic. Book. Okay, after that, Amazon. our, our, our first, first, uh, female superhero. She's not our, I guess she is our Wonder Woman, even though Ms. Ms Nova is, yeah, she's more a Superman. But she's this warrior woman, and that's gonna be drawn by Gil Kane. So Gil Kane's taking over Amazon. And, uh, I mean, what's not not to like there? And, you know, Amazon is kind of another hybrid superhero. She's basically like a superhero, but she's a barbarian. Kind of like Beowulf, but even more so. So Gil Kane could do both. He drew a lot of Conan's, but of course he drew a lot more superhero comics. So whatever adventures Amazon gets into, Gil Kane's got his pencil and pen ready to do it. Okay, next change. The Furies are basically our Avengers. That's going to be taken over by Jim Starlin. And, you know, Jim Starlin pretty much just stuck with cosmic superheroes all through the 70s and 80s. That's what he did. But we all know the famous uh, two part Thanos adventure from Marvel Two and One Annual and Avengers Annual numbers oh seven. Those are some of the best superhero comics of that time. I th- I believe they were the early seventies. They might be the late sorry, late seventies. They might be the early eighties. But oh my god, I read those as a kid. My brother bought them. We were both just like. Holy shit. Super comics could be this good. We never knew. That shit is so good. And. Jim Starlin who. I just grew up always thinking like. Oh yeah he was just those like. Outer space. Cosmic heroes. But when he did the Avengers. It was like wow. This is the best Avengers comic ever read. And uh. So I just can imagine. If he took over the Furies in nineteen eighty one, how fucking epic it would be. I just told he's that good every month. So, oh my god. I'm such a good editor. I'm the best. Okay, nineteen eighty one. Claw Fang the Barbarian. Um I don't have to explain that. I just said Clawfang the he's a barbarian. Hero, and that's gonna be taken over by P. Craig Russell, and uh, that's gonna be great. I, you know, P. Craig Russell is just master fantasy artist, especially then. Now it would be kind of weird because I saw some, uh, it was kind of weird. P. Craig Russell did a Conan graphic novel like 15 years ago, it is, you know, the style he's had for the past 25 years, which is more like clean line. More simple, still beautiful and amazing and perfect. But um, it almost seemed like he just doesn't have the, the rawness to draw Conan anymore. Like every, you know, Conan looked kind of, I don't know, just not how Conan should look. Even though the art was beautiful. But 1981... Peter Russell still had that seventies style. You know, more lines, more um feathering and stuff. I think that would it would just be fucking great. Him drawing coughing the Barbarian at that era. And um and so, okay, next switcheroo is Mandroid. And uh Okay, the chickens have come home to roost because Who's taking over Mandroid 1981? Jack Kirby. And uh I told you earlier, Mandroid's kind of like he is kind of like Machine Man. Or, or Division. Any of those Android heroes. But, you know, Jack Kirby created Machine Man in our reality in the 70s. <clears throat> and it's like everything Kirby did, it's got some legs. There's still a Machine Man running around every now and then in the Marvel Universe. So Kirby is going to be doing man And uh, 1981, Jack Kirby still had a little juice in him. Pretty soon, though, he's, you know, this is about the time he was doing Captain Victory, where he left Marvel in DC. And he's like, I'm making my own character. I'm going to own it. And the sad thing is, was that when he finally did that, after all those years of slaving away and giving up his creations, great creations that made millions of dollars for corporations, when Deckerby finally got it together and said, I'm going to make my own character and own the copyright and put it out. He was kind of old. And I got to say, maybe we'll see now because Captain Victory is nuts. He still has the epic grandeur to his art. There's still some great two-page spreads in those Captain Victories. But man, the writing is just inane and embarrassingly silly. And so, I don't know. I'd like to think, or I don't like to think, it's sad that Kirby couldn't do this, but in 1981, he'll just be drawn that. No more writing for Jack Kirby. Sorry, Jack. Okay, after that... Night Ranger... is going to be taken over by Bill Sankovich. Once again, I'm just aping reality. Bill Sankovich, you know, in the early 80s... took over Moon Knight, Marvel's Batman. And, you know, very Neil Adams-inspired when he started. I mean, yeah, like blatantly so. He was just a Neil Adams-clone... So, of course, him doing a Batman-type character is a perfect fit. So, Night Rangers are Batman, and we're getting Bill Sankovich. And, you know, he's going to be there for a few years, so in just a couple years, Bill Sankovich starts becoming Bill fucking Sankovich. So, Night Ranger is going to change things up a lot in the next few years, at least artistically, and Sankovich will be doing what he did, and... Grow as an artist and start doing amazing, abstract, more abstract, uh, impress. You know, impressionist, impressionistic. I don't even know if that's the way right to, but whatever Bill Sankovich did, he's you know it's gonna happen, because God, I love Bill Sankovich, in the eighties. Well, he's still amazing, but God, when that shit came out. I don't know if you guys were old enough, but it was fucking mind-blowing. It was like, what the fuck are you doing? Okay, so New Gods. Because I just said that Jack Kirby went over to Mandroid. He's been drawing New new Gods for 10 years now. I'm sorry. Yeah, 11 years. And, you know, basically, he's he's told everything. Jack Kirby's done. It's like I just want to draw this mandroid character, not have to think so much about this huge epic. So who's gonna take over New Gods? George Perez, and that would that would be fun as hell. I mean, because at this point, if New Gods went out for that long, it only lasted like three years in our world, maybe less. Can you imagine how many fucking amazing characters Jack Kirby would have created and spewed out (laughs) if his fourth world went on for 10 years? 11 years? It would just be this pantheon of hundreds of amazing characters. Which is why DC are such fucking morons for canceling it. It's like... You have a fucking idea factory working for you. For dirt cheap. This, Even if the comics aren't the best selling. They're selling enough to pay for themselves. And on top of that. It's. uh, What do they call it now? IP. No. IP? Uh, Yeah. Intellectual property. So Jack Kirby. Without even knowing this term. He was just freely giving them. You know, millions of dollars worth of intellectual property every issue, and he would have continued to, because Jack Kirby couldn't stop himself. He was a fucking creative madman. It's, he just, ideas spewed ahead of him. And, uh, so I don't know. Once again, sorry. I'm just, I can't believe how stupid comics has been run for. 90 years or whatever it is. Okay, after that, we got Stalker, our vampire comic. And that's going to be taken over by Marshall Rogers. I think that would be great, because Marshall Rogers, you know, known for his Batman work and a few other things, but really, he so many of his comics in his career, when you look back, it's like, he was really just good at, like, people stories, you know. Not people in tights and capes and, you know, he did Detectives Incorporated, one of those early graphic novels in the early 80s. And, you know, Madame Xanadu, he can do that shit. He does it very well. Destroying people, interacting. And, uh, you know, that's what Stalker is. He's not wearing spandex. He's not a superhero. It's kind of like our pre-Vertigo type comic. Or or too much Dracula, I guess. But Stalker is not Dracula. He's a modern-day vampire. And there'll be all these other characters involved. And, you know, whatever. So... And the last change we have is... Wolfen. will be taken over by Jerry Bingham. And, uh... To be honest, I'm not that excited by by this. All the other comics, I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to see that. I just needed, I needed a warm body to go for Wolfen because John Byrne left. So I'm just thinking, you know, at the time, Jerry Bingham was pretty good. Pretty good superhero artist, you know. Nothing. I never saw Jerry Bingham come because I was like, oh. So I just I put Jerry Bingham in there for that reason. So I'm not excited about it. I'm sure it'll be very good. But, yeah, whatever. And, uh, I'm sorry. But, um, I feel really bad about not having an artist for *Tibbs Fugitives. And I don't even know if I can think of one before next time. Because, you know, I've tapped myself out. Making all these, this whole comic line. You run out of great artists after a while. There's, like, how many great artists were there in the early 80s? Not fucking many. Compared to now, you know. So, uh, I think I've covered everything I need to cover. 1980, A lot of artist switchers. That was huge, that list. More than we've ever had. But I guess that's it. And I should probably go to bed. And I'm very proud of myself for not passing out. And, uh... Holy shit. Other than the episode where I passed out and snored for half an hour... This is by far the longest episode. It's 55 minutes, my clock says. Wow. So sorry I'm drunk, and I'm not very well-spoken right now. And, uh, but I, uh, hope you listen to the next podcast. I don't think anyone's listening to this podcast. But if you are, keep checking in. You get to hear what's happening in 1982, maybe 1983, and uh I guess there's one more thing I had to add. I wanted to mention our uh, you know, adult magazine size comic monthly zero. Uh I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. But all of the great Spanish artists would be in there. And, you know, I mentioned, like, European stuff. um, Japanese manga, like, Lone Wolf and Cub would be in it. But also creating new stuff for it. Like, man, just imagine Alex Nino just going wild all the time. Full color process. Esteban Murato... Vincente de la Alcazar, all these great artists, which we've been utilizing them in our four color comics, but they don't get to shine as much because the paper sucks. Printing's not that great. But when we start zero, these guys are going to have a nice home for whatever tales they want to tell. So, okay, I guess. I can go to bed now. I'm so tired. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Good night. Hey everybody, this is Greg Petix, and you're listening to the 24th issue of Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. Um we're uh in 1982 right now, but we're not Because I fucked up again And I forgot to mention some stuff So um, if you remember last episode I introduced a new title Tempest Fugitives And uh, I had to do some switching around In the last week At the last minute So I didn't have an artist for it But I do now And it's going to be fucking fun Because uh, I forgot that there's all these English guys that we could have been raiding earlier than DC Comics rated them in our reality. DC Comics went over to England on a fucking safari and just offered a little bit more money to those guys who were working for 2000 AD and basically got all the best writers and artists and comics uh, throughout the 80s. And, um, that's where they got Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and Damon Grant Morrison and you know, and this man, Kevin O'Neill, Kevin O'Neill, a famous artist of Nemesis the Warlock, one of the best comics to come out of 2008. AD, one of the best, easily best comics of the eighties, great stuff. Nobody draws like Kevin O'Neill. Kevin O'Neill is actually infamous, where he's the first only, first and only artist to ever have been cited by the Comics Code Authority for one of his DC Comics Green Lantern stories. And he didn't break any rule in the Comics Code Authority. He didn't show a woman committing a crime. He uh, didn't draw a nipple. Um, He didn't draw explicit gore or creatures of the night or, you know. What he did is just his art style was so just different and they thought wrong that they said we don't like this which um if you've ever listened to an interview with kevin o'neill is very proud of this and i would be too kevin o'neill does have a style where he can draw some alien and there's something wrong about it, it it's perverse even though there's no vaginas on its head or anything underground comics like he just has this very amazing imagination and Everything he draws looks kind of... I don't know, gnarly? And just fucking weird. So that's Kevin O'Neill for you. Of course, you uh, a lot of you uh, might know him more from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And in a way, Tempest Fugitives is going to be like that. You know, because it's going to be taking all these characters from literature. Even though they're going to be time traveling around. And, you know, meeting each other from all different eras. But... Kevin O'Neill is going to make it a lot more fun and interesting than it would be. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe Alan Moore will be writing that comic. Of course, around this time, Alan Moore will definitely be all over the amazing comics group. We would have headhunted that guy. And we'll just be letting him do whatever the fuck he wants. Because Alan Moore's one of those guys where he does respect continuity. When he worked at DC, he never fucked around. He was He was never like... I'm not going to explain this. I just want to tell my story and pretend that 40 years of comics history didn't happen. So he's going to be a perfect fit telling these amazing, brilliant stories. But still, the amazing comics continuity must be maintained at all costs. Because we've been doing it since 1940. And that's the precious treasure that we possess. So, yeah, that's Tempest Fugitives. Sorry, that was 1981 forgot to... Didn't have an artist at the time. Also wanted to mention, very embarrassed. Um, I've never missed, uh, pronounced Not mispronounced, just misspoke an artist's name. Um, one of the new artists we introduced, he's taking over Gunhawk in 1981, is amazing Spanish artist Jose Ortiz. And I think three times I called him Juan Ortiz. And uh, I should know better... I've been reading Jose Ortiz since I was a young lad in heavy metal and various um, Warren black- and white magazines. And once again, he's an amazing artist, just uh, very distinctive style. You see Jose Ortiz, you know it's him. Just he could just draw anyone's face.'re like, "Oh, this is a Jose Ortiz comic." So um, I guess this is another little aside. But when I was a kid, I remember being so impressed by this one kind of mini series they had. And I don't know if it was eerie or creepy, one of the worn Black and Whites. And it was called Night of the Jackass. And Jose Ortiz drew it. I don't know who wrote it, but it was an amazing concept where it actually was that the idea was that that same formula that Dr. Jekyll created to turn himself into Mr. Hyde in the 1800s, it's still out there somewhere. Somebody finds it in the 70s or the 80s and starts uh, manufacturing it as a street drug because basically who wouldn't want to, you know, take a drug that turns you into a fucking superhuman monster beast and... uh I think in the comic, in Night of the Jackass, it might even kill you. Uh, Not like most drugs. Most drugs will kill you, hard drugs, if you keep taking them. But this does, uh, you take it a few times, you're probably going to die, but you will get to have this great time. So I think it was basically their social comment on drugs, the way, yeah, most people who take hard drugs, it's not just because they're silly. Their lives suck. (laughs) And they're like... Yeah, this will probably kill me and ruin everything even more. But I got nothing, and my life sucks. So, so I'm, I'm thinking, because we have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in our universe, in the Amazing Comics universe, we've already uh, done that adaptation. This could definitely be something. And, uh But yeah, if you can ever find it, track down Night of the Jackass. It's really intense. It just becomes like almost like a zombie plague of all these people taking the drug and going nuts. And, uh... Going crazy. Um, okay. So, now let's get up to 1982. Uh, I probably forgotten some other things, but we'll deal with that later. So, 1982, we have a new title. And this one is basically gonna be uh, just a random superhero, but, um kind of stealing an idea when I was a kid I always liked guys like Hawkeye or Taskmaster guys who just had cool weapons and you know like this guy's going to be more like Taskmaster Uh, Taskmaster if you're not familiar with him he was a Marvel villain created in the I believe late 70s early 80s and he had the the most unique power I ever heard in a comic Uh, he had photographic reflexes which meant that he could watch someone doing some amazing feat just once and basically do it. So he wouldn't have to study 10 years to be a gold medal gymnast. He could watch a gold medal gymnast once, do all of his shit and be like, got it. My muscles got it. And my reflexes got it. Which I always thought could be a real thing. There's probably some weird person out there who has that when because you know you hear about all these people throughout history who have amazing brains and you know that don't work like anyone else's so who knows maybe that was a thing I don't know but I'm stealing that that's what Arsenal's gonna be he's gonna be he's basically gonna have all these cool weapons a shield a staff maybe bows and arrows who knows but he's gonna be and so you know he's not that strong he's just a human But he's, like, the most skillful motherfucker you've ever met. So, and then when he meets you, if you've got some unique fighting style, after four minutes, he's seen you do it, and now he can match you blow for blow. So that's Arsenal. And uh, Arsenal, I'm going to get Mike Zek to draw it. Um, To be honest, I'm not that excited about having Mike Zek draw it. He was pretty good. You know, we did that Punisher miniseries in the early 80s did some good master of kung fu's not as good as obviously Paul Galisi Gull- but and not as good as Gene Day but you know he was serviceable <laughs> and at this point just to draw your average superhero comic I've kind of run out of artists um you know there's some great superhero artists throughout the 70s and 80s but there weren't many and then there were some guys like Mike Zeck they were good you're not gonna pick up an issue of Arsenal and be like ugh this looks like shit. It'll be workman like. And, you know, tell a good story. So that's that's that. Um that year, our Amazing Tales Annual. Uh, if you listened last time, it's a no-brainer. We did Call of the Wild by John Severin in nineteen eighty one. This year we're doing White Fang by John Severin, where you get another tale of a wolf in there. So, uh, You know, John Severin, fucking 1982 drawing shit. He was so good. Even though nobody cared about him then. kind of sad. Because he wasn't drawing superheroes. But he was the best fucking artist out there, pretty much. And uh, nobody gave a shit. But you know, Amazing Comics gives a shit. And we're going to be so happy he's drawing Arsenal for us. So, okay, so, um... 1983. We got a new title. And, uh... Oh, I'm sorry. Before I go on to 1983, I want to say around this time, I would really, um... <laughs> I almost uh, dropped my guard there. No. I, it's not like I would really like this to happen. It did happen in my brain. Because this is all real to me. So around the early 80s, we you know, since the 70s, we've had that, uh... Uh... Uncensored, magazine-size... Uh magazine called Zero and uh, you know Zero's been publishing underground artists publishing Art Crumb if you would let us it'd be super cool to him hopefully because Art Crumb was pretty persnickety you know publishing Art Spiegelman uh, Bill Griffith and all the great European artists and Mobius and Lone Wolf and Cub from Japan all just so much great shit all the great Spanish artists We'd just be the best comics out there and I think in uh, the early 80s I kind of like la- stealing the idea from Marvel when they had that epic illustrated magazine which was their version of heavy metal we're going to have basically a zero comics imprint and those will be you know ba- better paper more expensive and letting artists own their own shit telling stories outside of continuity I know we've had that in Amazing Weekly ever since 1940, but this would be, you know, like, nice. Like, lots of miniseries. Basically, I want to gobble up all the great comics I love from the 80s that wouldn't fit into the Amazing Comics universe. But, you know, like, I grew up loving American Flag by Howard Chaikin. And we would have recognized that that comics... We want to publish that shit. And even stuff like Grimjack. You know, like... I love that shit. Tim, Tim Truman, John Astrander writing it. Um, so all those great 80s comics I loved, maybe even Nexus by Baron and Rude, they'd be over at uh, the Zero Comics imprint. Uh, so uh, that would basically be going on concurrently with all these amazing comics universe titles. So around this time, there's going to be a lot of stuff I won't be necessarily talking about. Every now and then I'll think of something and I'll let you know but um, yeah that would be great maybe we'd be uh, reprinting uh, great comp maybe that's where the 2000 d shit would appear yeah there you go it wouldn't be choking up Amazing Weekly because Amazing Weekly would have no room left so we'll be doing reprints of Nemesis the Warlock and Judge Dredd and Rogue Trooper all that great shit so um, okay 1983 we got a new title and that title is Vigilante. And Vigilante will be drawn by the great Paul Galacy. And um, you know, Paul Gulis was so good at drawing, you know, you know, street level. He was in he did some great science fiction. He he could do anything. But he was really good at that, you know, scenes at night. His art was very dark and moody. And so vigilante is going to be basically our punisher. You know, just normal vigilante. And I know in our world, that whole concept is very controversial. But I think in fiction, people can't help but love vigilante shit. Like, there's something very satisfying about seeing someone say, like, when you watch those Death Wish movies, like, oh, sorry, the bad guy got off. And, you know, believe me, I believe in the rule of law and habeas corpus and I'm, you know, I'm kind of a flaming liberal. So in our world I want that to happen. I know vigilantes are not a good thing. They would fuck up a lot. But the fantasy of it is very seductive. It's kind of fun to think about. And it's like yeah, man, who wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> like, there's no law against what that person's doing. But they don't, they're fucking up everyone's life. And um, sometimes I felt like that. Yeah, some really shitty people who just always ruin everyone else's life haven't yet committed a serious crime where they're in jail. But it's like that person is just just be put away, just taken out, and not literally. I don't really want to murder anyone, but some people, if they did die, I wouldn't be that sad. It's like yeah, that person was just ruining everyone's life around him. So that's the comic for nineteen eighty three, uh, Vigilante by Paul Glacey and, you know, I still like some Punisher comics. Especially when Garth Ennis was writing them in the 90s. Um, but as a kid, I yeah, I definitely like some of that shit. And um, still kind of satisfying. And Paul Gullis, he's drawing it. It's going to be fucking great. And uh, the amazing Tales annual for that year, that summer. This is going to be nice. It's going to be the time machine by H.G. Wells and we're going to get Michael Golden to draw so uh you know a- any science fiction drawn by Michael Golden any anything drawn by Michael Golden is a good thing but you know I could just picture him drawing the Morlocks and uh there's so much of that shit it's just so I can really picture Golden drawing it and uh, so that's going to be nice So in 1983, we got some artist switcheroo's to go to uh, tell you about. So uh, let me see. Oh, yeah. So I tried to do this a little more uh, cohesively than last time. So Paul Gullisey has now left Eagle to draw Vigilante. So who's going to take over Eagle? A Native American hero, superhero. And uh, with all these cool adventures... Okay, this is an introduction now to our stable of artists. One of my favorite artists from the 80s, I just mentioned him earlier, Timothy Truman. Around this time, Timothy Truman started drawing for first comics, drawing Star Slayer, and then, you know, those weren't so good. He didn't quite have a sea legs yet, but then he took over Grimjack, and that shit was so good. And, uh, Timothy Truman, if you followed his career, obviously has an affinity for Native American characters. He... Drew Scout probably longer than he drew Grimjack. And did a a graphic novel about Tecumseh. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's always, you know, he's got an affinity for this stuff. And one of his favorite characters is Turok, son of Stone. He even did a run on it. And uh so he's gonna be taking over Eagle and that's gonna be look that's gonna be some good looking shit. So, um let's go to Night Hunter. So, Night Hunter, which uh, is going to be taken over by another new addition to our stable of artists, and that is Steve Bissett. Steve Bissett is, uh, you know, didn't, other than doing the Swamp thing, the famous run on Swamp thing that Alan Moore wrote, he didn't really do much in mainstream comics because Steve Bissett likes horror, he doesn't like superheroes at all. Doing that kind of shit. Though we did him pretty good in 1963, but that's later. So uh Steve Bassett's gonna take over Night Hunter, our basically our monster fighting horror character. That's gonna be some great shit. Just like when he took over Swamp Thing, even though Alan Moore was such a strong writer with so many ideas, you know, he admits in interviews and talks to people that Steve Bissett contributed a lot. He had so many ideas about what horror should be and what's really scary. And I mean he's kind of almost like a famous a- academician. I can never say that word. He he's a smarty pants. Let's just say that. He's a smarty pants about horror. He's written many books about it, film horror, comic book horror. So, you know, he's gonna be taking over Night Hunter. That's gonna be a scary, great comic. So, um, Yeah, he's a new addition. I'm very glad Steve Bissette's drawn for us. So next is Captain Action, which uh, I believe has been drawn by uh, John Byrne for two years. You know, John Byrne had some spare time after drawing a monthly comic, because that's how he was back in the early 80s, late 70s. He's going to settle down. He's getting a little older. Can't keep drawing two comics a month, three comics a month. So we got taking over Captain Action... George Freeman Canada's favorite son Uh, I don't so when I was a kid the only comic book I had a subscription to was this Canadian comic called Captain Canuck and uh, I don't know if that's a cancelled word now if like I don't know if you can say Canuck anymore but as far as I know Canadians thought that was kind of a term of endearment even though it sounds kind of like a slur but Captain Canuck was basically like the Captain America of Canada. And it was kind of a goofy comic. This guy thought, hey, I can make some money, you know, having a Canadian comic book company. But then he found George Freeman, and he started drawing it. And instantly he was like, wow, this comic's drawn better than most comics in America. This tiny little company up in, I don't know, Hamilton, Canada or something. So, and of course, you know, a year later, Marvel and DC headhunted him and said, You're too good for that shit. You're working for us. We'll pay you more. So that's what we did. We got George Freeman. And George Freeman, definitely another guy. Nobody quite draws like him. He's not like uh, reinventing the wheel or anything. Just drawing good superhero shit. But he uh something about the way he draws faces and people's faces, you can always tell a George Freeman panel from a mile away. But a great style. He, he's got it. He's got the goods. So Captain is going to be looking nice from now on. So after that, we're going to have... Uh, um, let's see. Oh, yeah. So uh, Starhawk is going to be taken over by Brian Bolland. So Starhawk, if you remember, he's, you know, like our or a uh, space hero or a cosmic hero. So uh Brian Bolland's pretty damn good at science fiction. So uh and just he's great at drawing anything. So whatever happens in Starhawk for the next couple of years, he's gonna be drawing for two Because you know, I figure Brian Bolland, we're lucky to even have him. He barely drew any interiors, you know, after drawing like some shit for DC and then he was so good. He was basically like, yeah, I'll just draw a lot of covers for you guys. Collect a nice paycheck. But we're going to pay him better. We're also going to have better comics that he's going to want to draw. Because Brian Bolland is a comic fan. You could tell. That the projects he picks to draw. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do covers for some goofy comic that he loved in his childhood. But he still loves that shit. So that's the new artist on Starhawk. So, Walt Simonson was drawing Starhawk. Also just for two years. Which was beautiful. Walt Simonson doing a science fiction cosmic hero? That's going to be great. But now it's time for Walt Simonson to come home. For another chicken to come home to roost. Because around this time in our reality... It's when Walt Simonson took over Thor. The Marvel Comics Thor. And did a long run on it. That... Like... Everyone looks back fondly on that. As far as, like, early 80s comics, you know, you got John Byrne's X-Men and, you know, Frank Miller's Daredevil. And probably the third one in that trinity is Walt Simonson's Thor. Thor never sold that good. It was always just there because it was, like, a legacy title. It was one of the first Marvel comics, so they kept it going. Nobody ever gave a shit about Thor. I didn't as a kid. I'd always be like, yeah. This fucking long haired blonde guy speaking Shakespearean and, and uh, with all these weird characters. But um, yeah, Walt Simon said made Thor fucking fun as hell. Also, totally respectful to Kirby's vision of Thor. And um, Walt Simon was a big fan of Jack Kirby. So I'm so glad he's home. Walt Simon said going to be doing Thor for a little while for us. Hopefully, a long while. Okay, after that, we got uh, another new addition to our stable of artists. And we're going to have uh, Airstrike, our basically, like, depowered Iron Man character. He's not nearly as godlike as Iron Man. He's just a guy who's got a pretty good flying suit with some, you know, rubber bullet machine guns in his arms. But he can he's pretty cool. Airstrike, and he's got a better name. So, Airstrike will be taken over by Paul Smith. Another new edition. Paul Smith, right around this time, started drawing X-Men for Marvel. He had this very, like, almost like clean, cutesy style. You know, not a lot of lines. Very clear. Um, it was, uh, but really good. And fandom embraced him. Usually the artists, that get embraced by fandom. You know, they're usually really detailed. You know, use a lot of lines, kind of show off. Paul Smith did really none of that. He just had such a great style. You couldn't help but respond to it. Especially for superheroes. He was just very good at that. His X-Men's looked great. The writing was crap. But, um, you know, when you're that age and you like the X-Men, it's like, wow, they finally got a great artist. Dave Cockrum has been drawn it for a while and some of the random guys. And now they found a new John Byrne, even though he's different. So that's Airstrike. So since 1979, I believe, Airstrike's been drawn by Pat Broderick. <clears throat> so who's going to go over to... Wh- what's Pat Broderick going to do now? He's going to take over Coyote, our Spider-Man character, our young teen hero, wisecracking mid-level hero. So, oh, I'm sorry, I just over poured my sake glass, it's spilling all over. Okay, just had to take a sip. Yes, K- Braddock is still pretty damn good in 1983. And, uh, you know, he did some Marvel team-ups at the time with Spider-Man. He was pretty good at drawing Spider-Man. And, uh, definitely different than most Spider-Man artists. A little more detailed and belabored his art. Uh, but it looked good. And uh I think that'll Coyote will be great under his guidance. So, uh who's been drawing coyote since I believe uh Oh yes. So I mean it's almost a shame though, because Garcia Lopez, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez has been drawing coyote since 79. I should have kept them on longer. But um just because he's so perfect for that fit. But I kind of like this fit a lot too, because Garcia Lopez will be taking over our Superman, uh, Superwoman, Ms. Nova, and Lopez is so good at drawing science fiction, drawing everything, and just any. So Ms. Nova is going to be traveling around the galaxy and the universe, and meeting all these alien races, and Garcia Lopez is going to draw beautifully. And it's going to be nice. And so, I mean, I'm just happy that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez wants to draw anything for us. He can draw anything for us, as far as I'm concerned. I can't think of one comic where it wouldn't be a good fit. Because he could draw anything. Um, Even Night Hunter would probably be pretty damn good at. Though it would be a little too dark for him, I think. I've never seen Garcia Lopez's comics are always kind of light-hearted. Um, that seems to be his style, so that's going to be beautiful. Him drawing Miss Nova, and uh, I'm trying to just try to think of uh, who drew Miss Nova before. Was oh yeah, Dave Cockrum. Dave Cockrum was drawing Ms. Nova. Uh, he took that over in '79, and now that. Uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is bumping him off Miss Nova I hate to say he's bumping him out of amazing comics and the reason why is because around this time Dave Cockrum started getting pretty crappy that guy who just like five years earlier drew such a beautiful superhero comic Mm -hmm. that was very enticing and just looked good and if you were a little kid you'd be like I want to read this comic around this time when he took over the X-Men again after John Byrne left, it was like, all of a sudden it just looked like, I don't know, know, not fun, not good, like bad fanzine art, you know, amateur artist. He just lost a lot of chops or something. Maybe he was trying a new style, but it looked terrible. So, sorry, Dave is not good enough to draw for Amazing Comics anymore. He will no longer be drawing for us. Um, would give him a great pension plan even though he only worked there for less than 10 years but we'd probably give him a golden parachute or something or maybe a gold watch I don't know so that's that's that so uh, Shade the Changing Man Uh, our wonky crazy Steve Ditko crazy comic that he started in 1977. So, he's been on the comic for six years, and he will be leaving Shade. And who's gonna take over Shade, the changing man? This is so good. Nobody would've thought of this back then, in 1983. But this guy was already drawing brilliant shit in England so we're years before America discovered this guy we, we would have discovered him and I'm talking about the one and only Brendan McCarthy Brendan McCarthy uh, God you know grew up drawing when he was a young man drew lots of 2008D features always just brilliant always infusing some psychedelia into like this mainstream 2008 AD thing just a kooky artist and so, such a good illustrator as well. I mean, all of his kooky ideas he could visualize very well. So, um, and this is kind of not that far of a stretch. Um, he, had, Years later, when Shade the Changer Man got his own comic from Vertigo, a reboot kind of thing, Brendan McCarthy did do the covers, because Brendan McCarthy is a huge Steve Ditko fan. So, Shade is created by Steve Ditko. Brendan McCarthy is just going to be like, I want to fucking work on that comic. Sign me up. It's the, I'll be walking in the footsteps of Steve Ditko. So that's going to be a, a game-changing comic for Amazing. That's going to just, we're going to let Brendan McCarthy go nuts. I don't know, maybe Alan Moore will be writing that one. Maybe Grant Morrison. Maybe one of the great writers we poached from uh, England. Because I can't think of any American living up to that. Uh, doing justice to his art. Crazy art style. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter Milligan, his longtime partner. Yeah, we'd probably have Peter Milligan will be writing it, and uh, that would basically be our wonkiest comic up to this point. This would be like, okay, before Vertigo, we're doing that shit. Even though I guess around that time, Alan Moore started during Swamp Thing, and you know, so it's not like that was Vertigo. Basically, what Vertigo became basically all based on the English guys. The English guys infused America with all this great storytelling and different ways of making comics. So, um, I believe that's all the artist whichers I think I went through them all for 1983. And uh, I guess I do have to mention, though, I didn't even bid a fond farewell after fucking 40 years or something. Or 30 years. But that does signal the... The Farewell of Steve Ditko from the Amazing Comics Group. And I hate to say it, you know, definitely he'll be doing stuff for Amazing Weekly. His weird little series from the 80s, like The Missing Man and all the random comics he had for the smaller publishers. Still, he had some vigor and vim. But uh, pretty soon after this, mid-80s, he... You know, it could have been because Marvel treated him so shitty. So I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater or putting the baby out to pasture before the bathwater got cold. But I, uh, yeah, I no monthly titles for Steve Diff- Steve Diffen. I can't even picture what I'd want him to draw. But his kooky little stories, maybe his Mr. A stories, will still be appearing in Zero, where he can spew his a- Ayn Randian philosophies and those were still pretty interesting even though he's a nut job so an amazing weekly could have some little characters here and there but hate to say that's how it is so um you know I I have so much respect for Steve Ditko even in his later years until three years ago when he died he was still cranking out these primitive fanzines, basically. Um, self-published black and white comics. And he was old. And you could tell he was senile. Or had dementia. He couldn't spell anymore. Um, he stopped drawing faces on his characters. He was just trying to spew out his philosophy. But not even cogently. Um, just... Um, inanely. But they're fascinating comics. I actually own 25 of them. So, believe me, I love Steve Ditko. But his services are just not needed at that this juncture for those kind of things. I still want him to be an Amazing Weekly, making his own little weird characters. And then Zero. Because I still think he had it in him. Somebody treated him with some respect to be like, maybe an editor. Just say, Steve, just draw a little bit more. Don't, don't hack it out because in the 80s he did some fill-ins for marvel and random shit and it was the art was pretty fucking sad it wasn't very good so that's where we stand and uh i'm glad i got through that a lot of artists will choose next time i'll probably just be doing one year probably just be doing no i don't even know about that who knows let's see but thanks for listening If you want to send me a comment Send me a text Hell, you could even call me I'm lonely I don't have many friends And um, if I'm drunk It'll be even better Because I'm a very affable drunk I I like to chat when I'm drunk That's why I do this podcast So thanks a lot And uh, courage